From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. Welcome everyone. This is Julia Baltz again here with Dialogues in Dermatology. I am honored today to be speaking with Dr. Jean Carruthers, an absolute pioneer within the field of cosmetic dermatology. Dr. Carruthers received her medical degree from the University of British Columbia. She then went on to complete her ophthalmology residency at the Institute of Ophthalmology in Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. She continued her training in ophthalmology at the University of British Columbia, as well as the University of California, San Francisco. Her work together with her husband, Alistair Carruthers, has absolutely changed the face of cosmetic medicine through their discovery of the aesthetic benefits of Bosch line of toxin. She's the author of hundreds of peer-reviewed articles and author and contributor of multiple textbooks. And she's been awarded the highest honors within dermatology as an honorary member of our most prestigious societies, including the AAD and the ADA. Dr. Others, welcome to our Dialogues in Dermatology, Titans of Dermatology series. We hope to get to know you as the person behind your accolades. So firstly, if you could take a minute to introduce yourself to our audience as you think of yourself, independent of what we know of you. Thank you. Well, I'm actually honored to be here in addition to being asked as a titan of dermatology because I'm actually an oculoplastic surgeon. I have a very busy family. I have three sons and four grandchildren and my husband, Alistair. And we have really quite a fabulous family life. Uh, One of our sons is currently living in Rome. He's an architect. Can you imagine a whole year in Rome as an architect? And the kids are in school learning Italian. And I mean, it's just an amazing year for them. And I have uh, one son and that son actually went to Brown. And the next son also went to Brown, Julie, in your area. And the next son also went to Tulane and to Harvard. And he is now a professor of neurology at our university and as is his wife. And we have two grandchildren with them as well. So four grandchildren. And my youngest son, Graham, is actually my office manager. I actually moved, I was in a group practice and about three years ago, at the start of the pandemic, I moved into a new space just on my own. Mm. And everybody said, you're crazy. Don't you know it's a pandemic? But really it wasn't so crazy because I could get workers because there were no jobs. Right. And so I had the renovation done in just a few weeks. And uh, so then I asked my youngest son, who's in one sales, if he'd like to work for me. And he said, no way. I don't <laughs> want to work for my mother. <laughs> you can imagine that. But anyway, a little enticement or two later. And uh, he said, well, okay, I'll do three months. Mm-hmm. And now it's been three and a bit years. So it wow. works well. That must be delightful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's fun. Yeah. So tell us about your childhood growing up in Canada and how this informed your decision to become a physician. Oh, well, both my parents were physicians and I did briefly consider law, but I knew I wanted to do medicine Mm -hmm. Uh, just because I like people. I wanted to care for people. I'm not saying lawyers don't care for people, but it's a different way. 
Mm-hmm. And I was always very athletic. I rode horses and skied. I still ski and ride bikes and run and all those things. So that was the sort of active growth in, in Canada. But really, I think I really made my mind up when I was about seven. My mm. mother wanted to be a radiologist, but she was unable to do the training in Canada because we didn't have a Royal College of Radiologists at that time. So she took one of my sisters and myself to England, and we lived in London, and I went to school in England, and I saw really what a great thing doctors did over there. And I think that's what really, plus my parents being physicians, I thought, this is a good path. Absolutely. It's amazing that your mom was a physician that many years ago. That seems like she must have been a pioneer and inspirational for you. Yeah, I remember as a youngster being asked by one of my friends, so what does your mother do? Mm. And I said, oh, she's a doctor. And the friend said, oh, no, she can't be a doctor. She must be a nurse. Wow. <laughs> so even <laughs> in those days, <laughs> that's a long time ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, how has your experience been as a, a woman in medicine? And um, how have you seen that change over the span of your career for women? Thank you for that question, because the answer is it's a, it's an enormous change. Mm-hmm. I went from being the only female always in a group of men my, in my residency picture. There's little me in the front row and 20 odd men all around. <laughs> and when I came back to British Columbia in 1977 from London, there were two female ophthalmologists. So I was the third female ophthalmologist. Well, now we have journal clubs of 40. And all of the women are very well put together and very Mm -hmm. intelligent and very dedicated. You don't Mm -hmm. have to be a blue stocking anymore to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Changed tremendously. Initially, when the idea was that if you were female and became a doctor, you wouldn't bother getting married. You would just stay essentially married to your career. Right. And uh, I actually was very fortunate in marrying Alistair, a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. And I have to compliment dermatology because you all have open minds. Right. And so here's Alistair, who is a, a dermatologist working at St. John's mm-hmm. in London, very famous hospital. And uh, then when I got my first fellowship in ophthalmology from the Royal College of Surgeons of England, he said how nice it was to be married to a fellow. that's fantastic now did you meet him in your training over in london no when i was in third year medicine we were allowed to have three months of an elective and one of my family members my second cousin actually olive sace was a don at somerville college which is the female college at oxford and she said well come and live with me and so i went and worked with the incredible paul beeson you know, Beeson and McDermott, the textbook. He right. was the Nuffield professor of medicine when I was doing the elective there. He was fabulous. And I came back to Canada. I knew 20 times more or more than when I left. It, right. it was an amazing experience. So the concept of international education really came home to me then. Mm. Now, you know, it seems like your discovery of neurotoxins completely catapulted your career in a different direction. I mean, what was that transition like for you? And what was that, you know, do you remember pivotal moments where you said, 
this is something I have to explore. How did that transition happen? It happened. um, Initially, it didn't happen because I was still doing the kind of strabismus and eyelids, anterior segment surgery that I was doing before. And I was doing pediatric ophthalmology as well. And then I did the fellowship with Alan Scott. And that's what really changed things. So initially, my colleagues would all say to me, you are such a good pediatric ophthalmologist. Would you please go back and do that again? (laughs) But after you've seen it really work, Mm. after you've seen neuromodulators work, you don't need to see 100 patients. You need to see one. Mm -hmm. And you see this tremendous before and after. So everybody thought I was crazy. I gave away 20 years of pediatric ophthalmology patients to five colleagues here who are still doing pediatric ophthalmology. I'm sure the patients have all grown up. And I did something that nobody had ever done in ophthalmology here before. I put an ad. I had radio ads because I had to now change myself into being somebody who's cosmetic. So that was the difficult thing. They thought I was really, really crazy. But now everybody thinks it's great and it's wonderful you did this. But truly, I think the message I learned from it is if everyone thinks you're crazy, it's probably you've got a really good idea. (laughs) They haven't been educated yet. And certainly when I gave the first talk about it at the ASDS meeting in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, there was dead silence in the room. Normally I get some questions and some discussion after a talk. But it was dead silence. And people came up to me afterwards and said, how can you do that? How can you use the most poisonous poison to treat something so frivolous as wrinkles? Well, first of all, there's nothing frivolous about a wrinkle. We all know that. Right. And it's a poison if you use a wheelbarrow full. Mm. But in the quantities that we're using, and we have to trust the manufacturers that What they say is in the vial is what's in the vial. And that's why you don't want to buy any neuromodulator that's just over the counter on the internet. Because to Andy Pickett did the study that those vials can contain between zero and 280 units. So you wouldn't have a clue what you were injecting. So we we are basing our safety on trust of the people who make the product and also of our FDA and Health Canada. Right. Now, you know, it sounds like you were met with skepticism at that meeting. And how did you see that transition? How did you, you know, I'm sure you had people approaching you at that meeting who, like you said, said, this is ridiculous. And then five years later, 10 years later, asking for advice or to be involved. I mean, how did you weather that? Well, it was lucky that Alistair and I understood the whole process because he had seen me do the multi-center study from Alan, NIH study with Alan Scott. So he knew that it was safe and effective. And he knew as well how happy the patients were. The research patients came in always on time, always polite, always grateful. You know, that's a nice kind of patient to have. And so we had our receptionist, Kathy Bickerton Swan. She was the first cosmetic patient in the world. And he said in one patient, he's a believer. Hmm. So how was that transition? It was rocky. It was rocky, but because I had Alistair, who also understood, we realized that people just were frightened. It wasn't a hostile thing. It was a fear thing, we thought. And the the best antidote to fear is education. And luckily, people smarter than us have thought up the scientific method. 
And so that's what we started doing is research studies using the scientific methods so that people could then see, oh, it is safe. It is effective, certainly. And I could use it as well. And after a while, and this is what I talked about in my TED talk way back in 2012, after a while, all the other specialties say, well, they're getting great results in the cosmetic world. Maybe we could use it in our area. So it's really expanded the use of neuromodulators. I think it's 30 indications in 90 countries. So I think that's what it is, is that it's, it's physician spread. Mm. Once they believe the research and then have seen nice results in their own patients, they start doing their own studies. Absolutely. And what was your reception like within dermatology as an ophthalmologist? You dermatologists all love your women. So it was easy. <laughs> it was truly wonderful. If you were to ask me the other way around, mm. female in ophthalmology, where there's way fewer women, still way fewer women, it's different. Mm. And being the only woman, you have to work way harder than all the men in order to be accepted, truly. But in, in dermatology, it was social. Well, I mentioned that you guys have really lovely open minds. And so they even let in an ophthalmologist. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Now, did you have previous bench research before you started doing your clinical trials with neuromodulators? I've done bench research on rats Mm -hmm. when I was a medical student, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the development of the hyaloid artery and the physiologic optic cup in the optic nerve head. Mm -hmm. But I had not done any bench research with neuromodulators, all clinical with Alan Scott, initially doing my fellowship with him in San Francisco, and uh, then uh, more clinical research since that time. And it sounds like Alan Scott was a big mentor within your career. What other mentors do you feel like you've met along the way? And how do you think about mentorship as a physician? Oh, I like it. I think it's really, really important. It's just like being a parent, because Mm. If you're a successful parent, it's because you have done things right. Your kids will never do what you tell them to do. They will do what you do. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with mentorship. So my other really fantastic mentor was actually a couple, Barry and Marcel Jay. Barry Jay was a professor of ophthalmology at the Institute of Ophthalmology. He was also a consultant at, at the London Hospital at uh, Mile End in, in East London. And when I went over to England to do my ophthalmology, I was told initially here in Vancouver by the head of ophthalmology here, when I wanted to apply here, he gave me three categories and that should not bother applying, and women was one of them. Uh, you can imagine the other two. And so I applied in Toronto and I was accepted, but then I decided I'd go to London And so I did the primary fellowship in surgery there, which has a 15% pass rate. And I also worked as a senior house officer at the London Hospital, where I got to know Barry Jay. And he supported me to get onto the house at Moorfields, which is where I wanted to go. Like I was the second woman on the house at Moorfields. And it was a really a fantastic experience. Five years of the most amazing learning. And uh, now in the house at Moorfields, 50% are female. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, just really good. Yeah. Tell us about your your practice that you started in the last few years and 
this phase of your career? Right now, I have patients that I've seen for over 30 years, <laughs> but I also take in new patients and, and young patients as well. I'm doing no surgery now. Uh, I quit that about 10 years ago. I used to do a lot of blepharoplasties, liposuction and facelifts. Mm -hmm. But now I do neuromodulators, fillers, energy-based devices. And it's a clever step down, if you will, because I can still have a very busy practice, but I also can travel. It's very right. difficult to travel when you're doing surgery. You need to be there for six weeks for people. So this way I can travel to see grandchildren and family and friends without any problems. The practice is small in terms of I do all the medical things and Graham does all of the office management about to expand and take in two young associates so that we can have a busier practice. But it has been really fun having just a simple practice during the pandemic because I bought all these air purifiers and Graham and I knew that we were healthy and we didn't have a cast of thousands that, and we had really a very success. I don't think I've had COVID, although I've had all the vaccinations. Mm -hmm. So uh, how it's been has been really lovely because I've been able to book patients in a very civilized way. So they always have a lot of time. I never keep people waiting. Mm -hmm. And that is something that has been very nice for my day. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're still innovating and you're still doing clinical research type work. How do you keep yourself engaged? How do you keep yourself excited about the next steps in aesthetic medicine? Well, I think that it's the new stuff that actually serves to keep you going with everything. Mm. If you didn't have new things to look forward to, you might get bored. Mm -hmm. I actually kind of launched into a slightly different area of research with skin elasticity. Mm -hmm. That's my new thing, because although elastin is only 1.8% of our dermal protein, mm -hmm. it's so important. You get what you got when you were born, and then you wreck it <laughs> through years of and, and being in the sun. I can see you haven't done that, which is really wonderful. <laughs> Thank and, you. <laughs> and um but you can see we and we also lose dermal collagen as we age mm -hmm. so it seems to me that having uh, a device that will measure how elastic our skin is right. is really important to knowing how we are doing in terms of treating the dermal elastin and where right. it was taught me in medical school that you got that much dermal elastin and that's all you got now we know with the new creams that are coming out and that you can in fact stimulate the fibroblasts to make more elastin and so you can actually change the appearance of a face with a cream by increasing the amount of elastin so that my purpose of my little machine is to measure the elasticity so you don't have to do a biopsy to show it right right I mean we have all these ways to measure metrics of health um, within the body, but we don't have anything like that for the skin. That's yeah, I mean, it's like a crazy unmet need. Everybody says, well, we've got photographs. And that is exactly like what I heard with neuromodulators, right. with my surgical colleagues, they would say, well, we don't really need that because we've got surgery. Right. <laughs> right. I've heard that phrase again and again. 
It's just you haven't realized you need this yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, in our last few minutes, Dr. Crothers, if you have any words you'd like to leave for our audience, any advice to dermatologists and ophthalmologists as they're coming up in their careers based on your experiences? Yeah, I think that my career has flourished because I was so fortunate to have fantastic mentors. I mean, everybody who's gone into dermatology or ophthalmology is probably a gold medalist. You know, nothing is too much effort, but you really need mentors. And I I really, I have been a mentor to many people and continue to do that. And it's a joy to see that you can visibly improve what somebody was doing. You can bring them ahead a decade with a good relationship and you make friends so that the friendship goes on even though you're not specifically mentoring them you'll get a a phone call what do you think about this that or the other you're still mentoring them Mm. but they're now almost way ahead of you which is also a really nice thing to see Mm. and we've as part of the asds the future leaders network i think that is an amazing program i totally see that so many members of the ASDS board now, and I think AAD board, Mm -hmm. are graduates of that program. I don't know if you are. I am not, but I just finished a leadership course through the American College of Mohs Surgery. And so to your point, that mentorship goes such a long way in building relationships and learning more about yourself and your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the very, within the profession, it's the best way we can give back. And within the females of the profession, it's really the best way because the men have so many role models. Right. We don't have so many of, you know, the, the middle-aged right. and like me, ancient role models. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really, it's the most important thing we can do to foster success and ongoing success in the profession. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Crothers, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Julie. Me too with you. Well, again, to our listeners, you can learn more about Dr. Crothers. It takes just a quick PubMed search or an internet search to see her awesome TED Talk. We can thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.